Welcome to the GamesNet Berlin Europe podcast. Here, we speak with extraordinary games industry professionals and listen to their story to learn all about what they've built and who they are. GamesNet Berlin Europe is the international games industry initiative of MediaNet Berlin Brandenburg, the networking association for the media, creative and digital industries in Germany's capital region. My name is Simon Oller and I will be your host for this program. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Rami Ismail. Part two means there's also a part one where we speak about Rami's career. You can listen to that now or after this episode. Either way around is fine. You will find part one on the podcast platform where you're listening right now. So that should be easy for you. In part two, we go over Rami's personal life, how he grew up between two cultures, how that drives him to bring more cultural sensitivity into the gaming space, and what that means for his next endeavor after Flambeer has come to an end. That's what you're listening to right now, so please enjoy part two of my conversation with Rami Ismail. Hello again, Rami, and welcome back to the show. In part two, I wanted to ask uh, you a little bit about who you are. We heard a lot about what you've done, what you made, who you kind of have become, but let's go a bit into your background and uh, into your contemplation. So first of all, Where are you from? Who are your parents? How did you grow up? I am. I am was born in a um, in one of those towns in the Netherlands that has never figured out whether they're a town of a city. Uh, they, the Dutch, when whether, when you can be any village or any place, needs to have city rights from from more medieval times, I guess, to to be called a city. And the town I grew up in, I think, never got them. So we never figured out whether we're a town or a city, right? And that means that in the Netherlands, the scale of that is very small. So it's not quite a rural place. It, it was really a place. It was called Alphen aan de Rijn. Uh, it's on the Rhine, and it's in a part of the Netherlands called the, the Randstad and the Greenheart. The Randstad being sort of the commercial part of the Netherlands, where most of finance and commerce happens. And then at Groene Hart being the Green Heart of that uh, a sort of a triangle in which there is very strict regulation as to how much green there is. Like there has to be a certain amount of green in every place. So I kind of grew up in, I think one of the nicest places I probably could have grown up in. It was diverse enough um, and it had access to anything I could want, but it never was a big city. It never had big city problems either. Um, I was raised there and lived there until I was 17 or 18. No, probably a little older, 20. I, I went to I went to university in Hilversum and I moved to Hilversum at that point. And then I would spend a few months every year in Egypt, in Cairo, uh, because my father is an Egyptian immigrant. My mom is from the Netherlands. Um, they met in the Netherlands uh, when my father was here for uh, studies and my father just never returned home because he met my mom. Um, so that's kind of the story of uh, where I'm from, I think. I was never really, I think we said this in part one, but I was never really Dutch enough to be Dutch and I was never Egyptian enough to be Egyptian. So... It was strange for me to to always feel out of place. I 
didn't have the I didn't watch the same TV shows as my Dutch friends because I was spending time watching Egyptian TV shows and in Egypt I didn't have the sort of um, cultural foundation either to be fully Egyptian so I always felt a little out of place uh, everywhere I went um, that said I think I had a I had a really nice childhood uh, we we grew up I grew up me and my siblings we grew up in a, a relatively poor family I, I would say um mom was gonna be an archaeologist uh, an egyptologist to be precise but she had to cancel her plans for education when she met my dad and now she had to make sure that they could live somewhere together the, it was a obviously a, a more racist time so uh, a dutch woman and an immigrant man was frowned upon so um she was suddenly in charge of making sure that they could live. And my dad took whatever um, illegal job he could get uh, that would allow him to, to help with that. But, you know, like people like that get exploited. So he, he wrecked his back and, um, and his arms and, and his legs uh, for just a paltry wage. So, Eventually, he managed to get out of that when he naturalized and he became a teacher. He teaches uh, Dutch to immigrants to help people that immigrate like him uh, have a better shot in the Dutch society. And, um, you know, teacher is not a well-paid job. My mom ended up doing sort of an office administration-esque job. Uh, so it was not it was not a, a wealthy upbringing. We never had all the cool stuff or the, the big games or, uh, you know, new clothes or you know what we had went to the goal of all five of us going to egypt um once a year and then in egypt we'd be a little wealthier because the dutch gilder and, and later on the euro was uh, more powerful economically than the than the egyptians so in egypt we lived relatively well and in the netherlands we were we were relatively poor and uh despite all that i think i had a i had a lovely upbringing um the two cultures were always interesting to me. And yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because it's uh, something that, well, we can get into that right away. I know it's something that uh, you care about. You mentioned it. It um, seems to be part of your mission. And um, maybe you can explain a little bit at this point what you know what's important to you about um, this multiculturalism from your own perspective. Right. I mean, to me, it always felt like a superpower, right? Uh, as a kid, like it always felt like I could see how things were wrong or different in one culture because I'd seen the opposite be true in another culture. I'd seen the Western news report on things happening in the Middle East and I'd seen the Egyptian news report on things in the Middle East and they were just completely different in tone, right? The Dutch were sort of like, the Western elite ruling down on us in Egypt and the former colonists. And in the Netherlands, Egypt was that sandy country for tourists that, you know, is kind of scary because there's a lot of brown people there. Um, so I, I'd kind of seen both sides of, of the coin and it, it always felt interesting. But I think the reason I care so much about it in, in terms of games specifically is that as I was growing up, I realized that every game I played, I played somebody that looked like my Dutch friends and I fought people that looked like my Arab friends. And I was like, well, then surely if that's the case, there must be games where the opposite is true, right? The games made in Egypt 
obviously we'll have brown people as the heroes, we'll have Arabs as the heroes, and then European uh, colonists or, or um, um, you know, warmongers or, or armies like as the as the enemies. And games just didn't exist; they're not there. And I didn't understand why until I realized that the industry is so Western heavy that the folks in Egypt that wanted to do that, if if I had been primarily Egyptian instead of primarily Dutch, I wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be having this conversation. I would have never stood a chance. So I think that was sort of the moment the weight of privilege fully landed in me. Like I was aware of it. I was aware of racism because, you know, you suffer a lot as an Arab in a primarily white neighborhood, I guess. Um, I was aware of sort of discrimination. I was aware of the problems around it. I had never realized that I had privilege, right? Uh, And that I was in a place where I had more power than other people. And the first thing I wanted is to just make that right. I just felt bad. It felt inappropriate that I had these opportunities. Well, the, the version of me that was born in Egypt couldn't go speak in London, right? I had English education since I was 11 or 10 because the Netherlands is, is very strict about teaching us German, teaching us French, teaching us English because there's only that many Dutch speakers. Um, but at the same time, that that was such a huge benefit. London is an hour away and, and for, you know, from guilders or euros, it's not that expensive. Well, from Egypt, you need a visa. Like, you need to prove that you won't stay. You need thousands of dollars in a bank account to prove that you can sustain yourself. Uh, nobody has that. Hmm. Can you remember the time, like the moment or or the time uh, where, where you kind of, where that dawned on you? Where you where you realized that? What What factored into that realization? I think it must have been around the time that, It must have been around the time that, um, I can't tell which came first, but I think it was the original Call of Duty Modern Warfare where it really sort of kicked in. Um, I don't remember when that game was. I don't remember what year it was, but uh, I sort of have... 2005-ish in my memory. I I couldn't tell you, but roughly that time, right? Single digit. Right. Yeah, it was before Vlambeer for sure. And I, I just remember that... I played it and I I loved it. It was such a well-made game and and the sort of narrative tricks that they were playing were so smart. But it opens with a scene in the Middle East, right? And it's the execution of the president of a country. And I realized that that was probably the first time I'd heard Arabic in a video game. And it was such evil Arabic (laughs) Right, it was such stereotypical terrorist Arabic. Uh, it was all the fear from nine eleven, all the the hurt from nine eleven rolled into Arabic, and um, and then I just played Western people, not just white Western people, right? Americans, English people, and didn't matter what their race or background was; like they were the good people. And we were the bad people. And that was it. And I just went, there must be a 
Arab version of this, right? There must be an Arab version of Call of Duty. And it still doesn't exist because it's not allowed. You can't make a game where you just go and shoot up Americans. Like, that's unacceptable, right? Um, that's violence. Can't have that. Um, it wouldn't sure. sell. Right, the market the market wouldn't take it, uh, and it would be highly it would be highly dis- it would be highly discussed as inappropriate and too violent. And some people would have you know the the penny drop, where they go like, wait, if that's bad, then why is the opposite not bad? But most people would just have a a knee jerk reaction. You can tell that from uh, the fact that Medal of Honor at some point had Al Qaeda as a playable faction, and that led to so much outrage that they had to change it to insurgents. Um, you can only tell the story from one side, right? right. You, you don't get to tell it from the Arab side. So, yeah, uh, as soon as you see it, you can't unsee it. And you start to see sort of the little disrespects, the getting the language wrong, the Team America Arabic, the um, the, uh, the Arabistanification of our countries where all of them are the same sandy village um you know fallen apart buildings towers crumbling like you start to see the stereotypes and then you start to think you know you start to think how how is it for the russians right how is it for the south americans is are there countries you know is south is south america really like drug infested jungle probably not right probably that's the same thing and then the Russians, are they all sort of like secret communist conspiracy, conspiracy people that brainwash people with number stations? Probably not, right? Like, are Western people always good? Absolutely not. Like, I'd seen the news in Egypt when I was a kid. Like, a lot of bad stuff happens on behalf of, of sort of the Western reality on our world right now. So it was impossible to stop caring. I wanted to hear the other stories, right? I wanted to fix that imbalance. And I think it's it's sort of been part of my mission ever since is to make sure that everybody gets to tell the stories they care about. Everybody gets to express their worldview through games because games have this incredibly unique property as a descendant from play, right? As a descendant from putting a ball on the ground and kicking it to somebody and them understanding that they have to kick it back. That's a global language. So that games is. are a global language, but not everybody gets to speak it. And I want to fix that. I'm very curious about one thing. Uh, let me see if I can get this right. You you mentioned in the beginning that you uh, that your dad, your parents made sure um, that you would always go back um, to Egypt each year, presumably so you can soak up the culture know where you're from happy for you to correct that but just finishing the question would your would your parents or what's your parents your dad's view specifically um, on what you've just described would he agree with that would they agree with that how do they see this right just curious because it's a different time he's an immigrant and all that so that just came to my mind and i'm curious if that's yeah, if that's sure. you can speak to. I mean, a big part of going to Egypt was obviously just seeing the family, right? Like my grandma, my aunties, my uncles, my mm. cousins, nephews. I don't know. I don't know what the word is in English. I always forget whether it's cousins or nephews, but my family, right? Right. Um, 
That said, I think the funny thing is my dad never quite understood what it is I do, right? Um, Egyptian culture, Arab culture is is interesting in that uh, the idea of a good job is lawyer, doctor, or engineer. And I, I've always presented my job as engineer to my father because it's a respected job that he understands. He can talk about it to his friends. He can kind of brag about that I ended up a good kid. Um and that's important. That's important in the culture. And it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he's never really had any in-depth idea of, of what I do. Like the moment I think he got it, there, there were two moments he got it. The first, at first he was always, when Flambridge just started, he always said like, Rami, you should get a real job. One day you'll get married. You'll have, you know, you'll have children. You'll need a house. You need money. You can't keep playing video games, right? Uh, and I always had to correct him that I wasn't playing video games. I was making video games. But to him, to, to him, it's really the same, right? It's it's kid stuff. Right. And then Ridiculous Fishing came out, and he kept saying that. So one day I just opened the bank account, and I showed it to him, and he just went like, oh, uh, yeah, okay, good. Uh, can you get me a ticket to Egypt? Money talk. Huh? Um, <laughs> so I bought him a ticket to Egypt. Um, right. And then... Many years later, in 2018, I won the GDC Ambassador Award, and I flew my parents out for that because it was it was a proud moment for me uh, to have the work I did recognized by the industry and to have the recognition that these emerging territories matter. Right? Um, I don't I don't particularly care about the award for me. I care that it represents that the fight that I've been fighting is worthwhile in the eyes of my peers. Yeah. So I brought out my, I brought, I flew out my, my dad and my mom and my dad was, my dad was teaching the, the guy that was introducing me, Puriya Turkan, who is uh, Iranian, uh, was, was practicing my full name with Puriya because we said, if we're going to go on stage as an Egyptian, I'm going to start with Salaam Alaikum and I'm going to have my full name because my, my Western name is Rami Ismail. But my full name is Rami Ibrahim Mahmoud Hanafi Ismail, right? Um, so I wanted both. And when we arrived and my dad sat all the way at the front of that room for the VIP tables, he looked at the room and there was thousands of people. And he, he looks at me and goes, oh, Rami, are all these people here for you? I'm like, no, dad. Like, oh, this is the IGF GDC Awards. It's like a two-hour ceremony. You know, a hundred awards are going to get handed out. And he's like, oh, no, I think they're here for you. I'm like, Dad, come on. Um, and then, uh, you know, I get announced. Poria nails my name, Rami Ibrahim Mahmoud Hanafi Ismail. He, the Hanafi isn't perfect, but he got very close. Um, and I get, on, I get on stage, and the standing ovation lasted so long that I got a warning that I had to start talking or I would be out of speech time. Um, so I just started talking and I got back down and I sat down next to my dad and he looks at me and he goes, I told you they're here for you. <laughs> and I, I think that was the moment where he realized that what I did was important, right? Even if it wasn't important to his world, it was clearly important to all these people in this room enough that they would give his son a standing ovation. And I think from that point on, he just, he understands that this is a thing, but I don't think he understands why. And he doesn't need to, right? He doesn't. He doesn't have to. All he, all he cares about as an immigrant father is that his kids have a future, right? That they have a future where they can sustain themselves, 
that he worked hard and he suffered all these indignities and, and humiliations. Um, but that going forward, his his kids will be better off. And I think it's a very immigrant way of looking at things. Like it doesn't matter as long as it's better, right? Understood. It's a beautiful story, man. Gave me goosebumps. I could see the room. Yeah. Very nice. I can still see it too. It was it was a strange moment. I believe that. I know that getting this award was a meaningful moment for you, as you've just clearly described, but also a bit of a break point. And as far as I know, you've been in a bit of a, a contemplation phase, a retreat, a sabbatical, whatever we want to call it. Um, could you just speak to that and maybe... Right. Tell a story of how you decided that, what you've been thinking about, and maybe land on what 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 you're gonna do now, what you're doing now. Just right. walk us through that if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. So I I guess for for me, the period between 2010 and 2018 was an absolute roller coaster. Right, like things just went so fast, and we decide when we started Vlambeer, one of the ideas we had one of the one of the things in our in our you know in the business plan that i drew up and that we agreed on was that mo both jon willem and i had twitter accounts and they were small twitter accounts and the idea was that we would make a Vlambeer twitter account that could speak on behalf of both of us because neither of us spoke like Vlambeer. i spoke to businessy jon willem spoke to artsy we needed Vlambeer to sort of be a negotiator between us, right, in the public view, a persona that both of us could um, could be. And the the analogy that I used is we're going to be like a, a roller coaster, right? So we start with the cart at the follower level of both of our accounts, add it up, and then we're going to give it a push, and we're going to push everybody to Vlambeer, and then people will go to Vlambeer, will gain momentum, and then will we'll push the, the minecart all the way to the bottom, running after it, and then we'll hop in the cart and we'll ride it up higher than where we started. That's not how physics works, but that's the analogy that we used, right? So push the, push the cart down, hop in, ride up, and then Vlambeer's account would be bigger, and we would push people from Vlambeer back to our personal accounts to grow those as well. And that was sort of our social media strategy. It was not very thought out, but you know, at that time, having a social media strategy was remarkable anyway. So we did that. And I think the best way to describe my life is in 2010, I pushed the minecart and I've been running after it since. Right. It never, it never stopped. There was never a bottom. Flambeer kept gaining momentum. It kept going faster it kept going further ahead and what was meant to be one or two projects with a person I didn't like ended up being a 10 year adventure that helped uh, partially helped steer or define independent game development as it is now. And not by any intent, just by sheer force of momentum, right? Sheer force of our decisions always being decisions that ended up affecting how, how the ball rolled from that point on. And, 2018 was a strange time in my life. A lot of happened. A lot had happened in sort of my personal life. A lot had happened in my professional life. Uh, Nuclear Throne was out. 
um, I'd been involved in so many things, Prescott, Megabooth, uh, IGDA, I don't know what. And that award really gave me pause. It gave me a moment to look back at everything I'd done. And the weird thing about it is you're not, you know, you're not supposed to feel anything with a award, like any negativity with an award, right? But it kind of felt like the industry was saying, like, well done. You know, you did good. And now what? And that now what? It it really it it really hit me. Like I just didn't know. I didn't know what what was I beyond the person who travels, who talks to developers, who connects people across language lines and country lines, and um, who makes games. Like what what am I? Who am I? And I think I had to do my my teenage years. <laughs> uh at at age 28 to just figure out who i was right because i had no idea i was vlambeer i was rami from vlambeer that was it so i took a break uh nuclear throne had come out and we we'd been taking a break from vlambeer since um and then after after the award i kind of had to reset and figure out what i wanted to be and figure out what i cared about and i i realized that a lot of what I did was dependent on me existing, right? A lot of my work connecting communities was dependent on me being able to travel to those communities and talk to those people. A lot of the things that I did were dependent on me doing them, whether it was one reason to be or a game dev that world, like they, they kind of depended on me existing. And I realized that I wanted to fix that. Right, I I always believe that the best work you do is the work that makes you obsolete, that makes you not required for it to continue. So, I started thinking about that. I started thinking about if you know, if God forbid, one day one of the flights I'm on has a problem, or one day I have a medical emergency and I, I don't survive it, um, what do I leave behind that ensures the industry is better than when I found it? Because, like I said, this is my home. This this is my I knew, I hate the word family in terms of like work, but uh, it is my family, right? These these are these are the people that I care about and the people that I know and the part of the world, the tiny part of the world where I can fix some of the nonsense that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been given that privilege, right? For now, I've been given that power for now, and I know in the future. It'll fade and it'll go to other people. It'll get handed down to others. Uh, it'll. Um, my job won't be to push anymore because I will have become the establishment. I will have become the industry um, to the people that are pushing even harder, right? And to me, that's exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. I, I can't wait to no longer have the influence in the industry that I have now because I can watch people push it further than I would ever be able to. Because my the way I look at games, the way I look at the industry, the way I look at the world is obviously defined by how I grew up, what circumstances I grew up in, how I've seen indie grow from what it was to now being discussed. Like the idea of indie games making money was ridiculous in 2010. And now mm. we're talking about like, cooperatives and like different ways of structuring our company and unionizing and all of these amazing things that to me, I'm just happy I'm earning a dollar, you know? Um, but I also recognize that it, that means I just need to get out of the way. 
like this like it's not about me it's not about what i want for the industry and anymore the industry wants for the industry and i think part of that decision making played into um shuttering flambeer back in 2020 um on our 10th anniversary because i think flambeer was a statement studio right it wasn't just a studio making games it was a studio that we sp- everything we did spoke to a truth about independent game development that we thought was important. And the promise of Lambeer was that two kids using Game Maker, if they, th- if they took things seriously and they worked and they took care of themselves and the people around them and they were helpful to the community around them, that if you did all those things, that two kids could be successful in indie games, right? That was Lambeer's promise. And it's been Lambeer's promise since 2010 and it and it was Flambeer's promise in 2020, but I think we realized that that was not that big of a promise anymore in 2020, right? We know anybody can be an independent game developer. Anybody can pick up Game Maker or Unity or Unreal or Construct or Godot and make games. Hmm. So the promise wasn't necessary anymore. The statement wasn't necessary anymore. And Flambeer, Flambeer deserves better than to to wither away. Right, it deserves better than to end on, and it faded away for years. So we saw one last statement, and the statement was very simple: it's okay to stop. Right, it's okay to build something and have it become part of your life, and have it become your identity, have it become the way you earn money, have it become something you're proud of, and it's also okay to just go. It was good. I want different things from my life now. I want to move on. I want to achieve other goals. And the structure that I'm in right now, the identity that I'm in right now, it doesn't fit it. Quitting so, tends to be a, a wise choice. Yeah. It's it's interesting because it's so rare. When we actually reached out to press to, to announce that we were shuttering Flambeer, I said, I told, um, I think it was Kotaku. I don't remember who it was, but... I sent them an email and I said, hey, listen, we're announcing the shuttering of Lambier on September 1st. This was two or three days in advance. And, you know, we were wondering if, you know, you would want to report on it. And if so, if you want to chat about it. Uh, we're also doing a sale. Um, link will be here. You know, we, we just sent the email out. And we just added, like, we would appreciate it if you, would, if you could keep to an embargo of September 1st, 10 p.m. Right? Uh, European time, I think. And we got an email back and it was just like, I don't think I've ever seen an embargo for a studio closing because usually they're out of business. <laughs> and it's yeah. true. Yeah. The, the stories that I know of, of independence of studios, independent, triple, it doesn't matter, of studios closing because they wanted to, I don't know how many those are. But isn't it perfect for a studio like Flambeer to end on a statement like that, to say that this is okay? Because I know a lot of indies that get stuck in who they have to be. And I think, in a way, Flambeer making this statement, even though it's not the statement for the people dreaming of being an independent studio, I think it's a good one. I think it's a fair statement that it's okay to move on. And um, if that's the final statement of Flambeer, I think it can rest. It can rest peacefully. So Yeah, I think so too. I, I, I think that's a very wise choice. Um, Many things are, are being written out and uh, don't um, don't exit the earth gracefully. And I think both 
projects and the connected identities mm, must be exited gracefully for something new to arise. And I wanted to ask you two things for kind of um, the, as we're getting closer to the end, um, you said, well, first of all, I, I have a quick question during your contemplation phase now where you're kind of deciding what to do next which you described what what were your influences did you study anything did you read anything was there something that you drew your inspiration or your influence from to well make the step you just described but then also ignite this rebirth i think I think honestly, for anything with Vlambeer, I think the funny part is that even though me and Jan Willem didn't like each other, right, we always agreed about the big things. And I think my biggest inspiration in taking a jump like that was Jan Willem. Um, and I would kind of hope slash assume that it's probably mutual. Like we have always been good at taking the big leaps and this was the leap that needed to happen. In terms of... Um, in terms of what inspired me, like the thing, the thing with inspiration for me that is so hard is that I don't, a lot of things only make sense in hindsight, right? When you look back at your life and you see the moments that defined you as you are, I can draw lines back to the person who teach me, how, who taught me how to play chess, right? Because I was bored in class and my kindergarten teacher decided that he would start a chess program And it was an introduction to me to game design, to game rules, to mechanics. But it was also a social activity that I really needed as a sort of awkward uh, five-year-old, right? Uh, something that I could be good at, something that I could teach others in, something that I could um, help people get better at. Those sort of qualities of, of who I am, they could have turned out really poorly, right? Without proper guidance growing up, the sort of helpful the need to be helpful that I have, the one to be helpful that I have could have easily turned into something less useful or, or more malicious. And you look back at life and you see these lines throughout, right? The people that nudge you, the people that sort of push you into an interest or push you away from a mistake. And they're never, they're rarely the people that you look at and go like, these people define my life. Right, they're always small nudges that you have really have to look for to find them, but they're always there. And um, obviously, I took a lot from my dad, who decided to be an an Arab, a Dutch teacher to immigrants to to make life better for people like him that didn't have the opportunity or the privileges that uh, other people have. I, I I'm inspired by my mother, who worked day in day out every day of her life as long as I saw her to make sure that we had a future and an opportunity. I'm inspired by my siblings. Um, I'm inspired by my industry. I'm inspired by my medium. I'm inspired by the way the world works, the way people interact, the way there's cables across the ocean and airplanes in the air and a spaceship in space, but we still don't know what's at the bottom of the ocean. I'm inspired by movies and music and books, uh, the, the unfairness of there only being one Nobel Prize winner in Arabic. Uh, I'm inspired by the, the world, right? Like everything I'm come across is is a little poke to do better, to make things, to speak up, to sit down, to um, think. And I can't tell you which inspiration where pushes what or gets me to do what I do. I just know that 
it's an incredible privilege to be able to work at the things that I do to create the opportunities for people that I get to create because it's a privilege to create opportunity for others, right? It's not a, it's, yes, it's absolutely work, but gosh, can you, can you imagine a little me looking at a game and seeing Rami Iswain on the cover, right? The idea that that's possible. Can you imagine uh, what that would be like? Can you imagine what it would have been like if, the documentation to make those things was in Dutch, right? Instead of me having to learn English to vaguely understand it. Can you imagine what the world would be like if game development was truly global instead of just set to be global? Um, can you imagine what it would be like if making games was as easy as taking a photograph and everybody could do it and you could get a game for your birthday, right? Not by a game developer, but by, you know, your parents making you a game for your birthday. Like, Every time I think about these things, I just I'm excited to to do more. I'm excited to keep working at it. Can you imagine an industry that is fair and honest and equitable and free of the hurt and harm and char- and, and crunch and obstacles that marginalized underrepresented people f- face that even the non-marginalized and non-underrepresented people face? Like there's so much to do in this beautiful medium that it's just exciting. It's exciting that we don't know where things are going, but it's also exciting to feel like even if they're not, if even if not everything is good now, it's better than before. And I don't think that is reversing. I don't think we will turn back and make things worse. Like for me, um, every day I wake up to do more stuff, it's just, it's a little gift. It's a privilege. And I'm very thankful to be able to do it. Very beautiful. Rami, you are a modern-day video game poet, brilliant storyteller, <laughs> and your visions are astounding. Um, thank you so much for sharing them and for uh, tying everything together nicely. Where can people find what you do um, and get as excited as you are about what you're going to next? Uh, where should people follow you on, on the internet? And right. Um, the easiest place is to follow me on Twitter, T-H-A underscore Rami. Um, if people want to talk or chat or have questions about game design or independent game development or anything they might be stuck with, the pinned tweet there allows people to get uh, free or cheap consultancy depending on where people are from. Um, I also am the executive director of GameDev.World, which is an international event slash charity event that happens occasionally. Um, and they can stay in touch with me on podcasts as well, the Habibis podcast, which is a podcast about three Arab game developers drinking good Arab tea. You can find that at thehabibis.com. Yeah, I think those are the best places to keep in touch with me. Cool. And so they shall. Thank you very much. Any last word from your end? Uh, it was a It was a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for your story and talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to part two of this episode. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you could do that. And if you listened to both already, thank you so much. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast on whichever platform you may be listening on, so you can stay tuned for many more exciting games industry guests from Berlin and from all over Europe. So I see you very soon. Until then, take care. Thank you and bye-bye. Hi there. Before you go, this is Florian project manager for GameSnet Berlin Europe. 
If you want to stay connected to the network, find out more about upcoming events and links to other MediaNet initiatives, you can visit us at gamesetberlin.eu and subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast and until next time.